Well, good evening, everybody. I'm glad that you've come back to join us for communion tonight. When I was, uh, I think I was about 12 or 13 years old when I got my first computer. And this was a little while ago, so my first computer was one of those that had a blue screen on it. And that's it. You remember those? Uh, there wasn't even, like, there was no mouse or anything. There was no cursor or anything like that. It was just text. And believe it or not, there were games for it. And they were actually on honest floppy disks. They were actually floppy back then. And I remember uh, getting into games and playing them a little bit, getting out of them. And when I would get out of the game, it would give me a prompt. And it was a prompt that would come up a lot, you know, as I would grow in my computer usage. But it always came up, and I thought it was always kind of just weird. I would, get, I would say, exit, get out of the program. And it would give me a little prompt, and it would say, are you sure? <laughs> I thought, well, of course I'm sure. <laughs> you know, yes or no, you know, Y slash N, it would say, are you sure? And I just remember seeing that all the time as I was using computer programs. I would like click or this or click that or do whatever it was. And it would ask me, are you sure? And I was always annoyed by that. And I thought, this is totally, almost completely useless in this area of life. But it would be really helpful in other areas of life. Like not computer related. If I were just going on in life and I'm about to make a certain decision, if a prompt would come up right in front of my face. Everything about this would be pretty useful. Are you sure? <laughs> are you sure you want to do this? You're about to take your bike down this whole set of stairs. <laughs> Bing! Are you sure? <laughs> y slash N. <laughs> that would be very, very helpful. Uh, well, I, you know, I went down the stairs with the bike, and I realized that prompt would have been helpful. I remember once I was whitewater rafting in West Virginia, and we were in the middle of the pass, and they stopped, and they said, well, we're going to stop at this rock. It's called Jump Rock. And I thought, I think I know why they named it that. <laughs> and it was huge. It was 30 feet in the air, something like that, 30, 40 feet in the air, and you're supposed to stop. Well, yeah, we're going to line everybody up, and you jump off. Okay. I'm not wild about heights, okay? I'm really not. But I, everybody else is doing it, so... <laughs> I can't not do it, so I'm, I'm up there, and I'm in line, and I'm dreading this. And every step of the way, I'm thinking, no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to do this. And my feet are shaking underneath me, and I remember being at the very edge of the thing. I mean, it, was, I mean, it, it, it may as well have been 130 feet for the perspective that I had. And everything in me was completely unsure. Certainty is important in life. Having confidence about something is an important thing. It's important in little things like that when you're jumping off of a rock that's 30 feet in the air because if you jump with shaky knees, then you're going to hit other things on the way down you're not supposed to hit. You need to jump confidently. But I think it's even more important for us in our faith. And the word that we have for this is assurance. Having assurance in our faith. Are we sure? If we're not sure in God's love for us, 
if we're not sure in our standing with him, then that's going to have an effect on our life. It's going to have an effect on the decisions that we make. We'll make decisions we wouldn't ordinarily make if we're not sure. We'll take things into our own hands in life if we're not sure of my standing with him. If I'm not sure of whether or not he cares for me, if I'm not really sure about those things, when it gets down to it, I'll trust myself more than I will trust God. Right? Assurance is incredibly important. There's a lot of different places in Scripture dedicated to giving us assurance. And one of those places is Romans chapter 8. You can turn there. We've been studying this a bit in the Prime Timers ABF. And I thought we need to cover this here tonight. Romans chapter 8. We'll get started in verse 31. Before this point in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul has been going after the reality that there are things in life that make us unsure, that we endure things that are difficult. In fact, in verse 18 of this chapter, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And he gives us this reality of life that I think you and I find ourselves in. And it's this, that we're kind of in between the groaning and the glory. That it says that creation groans and that we groan inwardly because of our sin. That we're broken, that this world is broken, and we know that it's broken. And no matter how great of a day we have, you know, sunny and 75, we know deep inside that there's something deeply wrong that needs to be righted. That's the groaning that we experience. But we're on our way to glory. And if we're unsure about that, that can have an effect on our faith and on our lives. And so he says there's a lot of these things that are reasons to be unsure. And then he gives us an incredible reason to be sure, to stand firm in our faith. And it starts in verse 31, and he says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will not he also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's a powerful statement. God is for us. He is on our side. Sometimes I read that and I just think, well, that's, that's really nice. I, I like that God's cheering for me, but it's, it's more powerful than just God cheering for me. There's a lot of language here in Romans chapter 8 that is judicial in nature. And so you encounter this imagery of a courtroom, essentially, where the Apostle Paul says that we have advocates, or we have an advocate in this courtroom, because we're the ones on trial. And the advocate that we have is Jesus Christ himself. And so when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is the image that he's drawing on. He's drawing on the image of saying, you have somebody who is arguing your case. You have an advocate. Have you ever had an advocate in life? Somebody who is taking your burden upon themselves and helping you shoulder the burden that you have? This is what we have in Christ. 
God gave him to us for this purpose and covered our debts. And so Paul says this is a huge reason to be certain. But then in the next few verses, this is where I want to focus on tonight, he identifies three different things in life that tend to even attack that certainty and make us unsure. And it's important for us to follow along with these, to know what they are, and recognize them in our life so that we know how to combat them when they come. And so we continue in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So, We have a reason to be sure, but there are things in life that make us unsure. And one of the things that makes us unsure is accusations. Accusations. Thrown toward us. And they come from many different places in life. Sometimes the accusation comes from the enemy himself. We're told that Satan is called Satan for that reason. He's the accuser. And he does this through different avenues. But sometimes the accusation that I'm facing in my life comes from the court of public opinion, right? I'm going through life, and it's easy for me to get wrapped up in what other people might think of me. It's easy to get wrapped up in that. And when you do, you give their verdict a greater weight than you ever should. And you carry it with you. If I think that these people have rejected me for one reason or another, I feel uninvited by this group of people, or I feel like they think that I'm a loser or something like that, or I've been excluded, well, that's that's a verdict of sorts that I carry with me. It's an accusation that I don't measure up. That's entirely possible. Another place that accusations come from is the court of failure or success. Where I have attempted something, maybe at work, maybe in my family, maybe in my personal life, whatever it is, and I failed. And failure is difficult to swallow, and it's something that can very easily make us feel unsure as we walk forward in life. But we need assurance. When I've failed and I'm facing my failure head on, man, that, that, goes, that goes straight to the heart. I heard it said once like this, if, I am, if I'm placing my identity, if I'm placing my identity and my assurance on my performance, then success always goes to my head and failure always goes to my heart. Now, that's true. If this is what I'm doing, well, accusations can come from a lot of different places. They can also come from my past. Maybe I know deep inside I've got sins that I have confessed, that I have asked for forgiveness for, that I have moved on from, but the past has this way of reaching at us from behind over and over again, and we get reminders The enemy will give us reminders, or maybe other people in life. Different things will trigger us, and we'll be transported back to that time. 
where we failed big time. And we think, man, there's no way that God could love me. There's no way that I can be sure in my standing with him because this thing that I messed up 10, 15, 20 years ago is still reaching at me from behind and it's right here in front of me as if it occurred yesterday. Accusations can come from there. They can also come from myself, right? Maybe it's not that everybody else has this poor opinion of me. Maybe it's not that I failed in everybody else's eyes. Maybe it's just that I failed in my own eyes. My standard was let down. This is a really powerful reality that we have to grapple with, and I love the way that the Apostle Paul addresses this, and he does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read this for you. You don't have to turn there. This is one of the most, I I would say, blunt areas of Paul's writing is right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. You see, what was going on there is there were a lot of people who were celebrating great pastoral leaders and great speakers in the time of the Corinthian church. And they would say, well, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with whoever else. And Paul would say, don't you realize it doesn't matter what you say. Your, your verdict on me is not what I'm basing my assurance on. He says, I don't care if you judge me. But then he says, I don't even judge myself. I don't have the right to make that call. Who does? It's God and God alone. So who condemns? Who brings any charge against those covered by Christ? What does Paul say in Romans 8? No one. No one is there. God is the answer. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Accusations make us unsure. But if we are found in Christ, and if we are looking at what he has done for us, we can answer every accusation with the truth that when God is my judge and he's my advocate even accusations that are accurate they only make me more certain of my standing before him because even if somebody comes at me with something that's true I can say yeah that's an area that I struggle with or that's an area that I failed in But God is the one who judges me, and I'm covered by him. And the accusation loses its power, and I gain certainty and assurance as I stand in my faith. That's a big deal. But there's another thing that Paul says threatens my assurance in him, and it's in the next verse in Romans 8, 35. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That quote there in verse 36 is from Psalm 44. And Psalm 44 is a psalm of lament. If you go and read the entire thing, it's a really intense and powerful psalm of lament. And it's one of the rare psalms that starts out with lament and it ends with lament. It starts out talking about suffering and it kind of ends talking about suffering. A lot of other psalms that have a lament theme to them start out with lament and they end with a turn. But praise be to God or something like that. Well, Psalm 44 doesn't end that way. And Paul quotes it here. It's because it says, not only accusations threaten my assurance, but also suffering does. Real, true suffering threatens my assurance. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution? How in the world do these things threaten to separate us from Christ? Well, it happens like this because it happens in us. When I encounter something incredibly difficult in my life that I didn't bring on myself, it just happened. I woke up one day and the news was bad. How I thought God loved me. I thought he did. I was, I was sure about it. And then this happened. And sometimes it's not one thing, sometimes it's four things. This happened, and then this other thing happened, and then this other thing happened, and now, at the end of that line, I don't know how sure I am about this anymore. We've been there, right? You walk into a church on a Sunday morning, and you don't feel what you used to feel because of the circumstances, because of the trouble, and you end up in a place like what Paul quotes here in Psalm 44. Man, I feel like I'm just facing death all the time. And it feels like, it feels like defeat when circumstances are so difficult and we just have to endure. It feels like defeat. And we even have a language for it that works this way when somebody is particularly facing uh, a difficult illness and maybe they succumb to that illness. We even have the language for it. We say that they lost their battle with whatever it is. Because it feels like defeat. So interesting then that Paul says, in the face of defeat, in the face of what feels like defeat and suffering, he says in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than, what's that word? Conquerors. This is an important word. Because it's a word that means (laughs) blow out victory. That's what it means. It means victory. It means to win and win big. So interesting that he would say that. That he would say trouble, hardships, persecutions, all of the things that threaten to separate me from the love of Christ. Not because Christ doesn't love me in the midst of my suffering. We know that. We know that just because I'm going through something difficult doesn't mean that Christ doesn't love me anymore, right? We know this. He does. But it's what I feel in the moment that threatens to separate me because it shakes my assurance. And he says, even though you are shaken and you feel defeated, even though this might take you out, the reality in the victory that Christ has won is that it's not just a victory by a razor-thin margin. 
it's a blowout win. It's not even close. You ever seen a blowout before? It's terrible television. Right? You tune out. I went to a baseball game one time where the Tigers won. I know this is now a little while ago. The Tigers actually do win sometimes. But the Tigers won, and they were, I think in the sixth inning, they were up 18-1 to in a baseball game. And what happened to that stadium? Everybody takes off. So we went from our upper deck seats all the way down behind home plate. It's, bo- it's, it's boring. It's no contest. Now, that's not good news when it comes to a baseball game that you paid 50 bucks for. But it's really good news if we're talking about the sufferings that we face in life. Jesus himself said it this way, and John recorded it. In John chapter 16, it's the very end of that chapter where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this. It's a promise. He says, I've told you this thing so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I won. I have overcome the world. Past tense. But he's standing there in front of them. This is pre-crucifixion, pre-all that other stuff. It's so sure that he says, I won. And Paul says, as he interprets that language into what Paul is dealing with in that moment, Paul says, you are more than conquerors. You are more than pe- You win big in Christ. So as you are facing the things that make you feel shaky, you're unsure. Oh, man, I don't know. Does God really care for me? Does he really have my best interests at heart? Because I keep going through this thing and then we get good news and then we get bad news. And the treatment kind of works and then it doesn't work and then it does. And I don't know where to go with this and I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm really unsure in the future. Well, you can be unsure in what's going to happen, but you can be completely sure in your standing with God and his love for you. Because even if the thing takes you out, God has won. And it's a blowout victory. You're more than conquerors. It just doesn't feel like that a lot. We talked about this in the primetime or ABF. Have you ever killed a snake before? I did this one time with my little sister to freak her out. Because I knew this would happen. But there was a snake slithering around in our backyard. And I thought, hey, Ash, come on out and check this out. And so I used, I don't remember if it was a sharp garden shovel or something like that, but I cut the head off the snake. And what happened? Oh, it kept moving around. (laughs) And she ran, 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 ran into the next county, I think she ran. What's interesting about cutting the head off of a snake is if you don't, if you don't bury the head, and you just leave it there, and you walk by, and you happen to get your foot close enough, it can still bite you and deliver its venom. It can still do that. It's going to die. It's on its way out. There is no, there is no next chapter for this thing, but it can still do that to you, right? This is the power of sin and death, right? Jesus has won the battle in a blowout victory. He has won. It's on its way out. Sin and death are on their way out, but we still feel 
the bite. We still feel it. It still gets to us. We still struggle deeply. We still have things that we face that make us unsure. But don't let that, don't let that discourage you. Take heart, as Jesus says, and know that the final victory is assured, and it's a blowout victory. Suffering can make us unsure. But there's one last thing that can do this too, and Paul covers it in verse 38 and 39. He says this, For I am convinced, he says, I'm sure, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've talked to some people in my pastoral experience who have felt as though I know that suffering can't separate me. I know that, you know, accusations can't separate me, but I just feel like I can separate myself. I feel like I can, you know, that I've just racked up enough sins in God's ledger and eventually that that will cause my separation from his love, that I can do that. And you can't. You can't. Did you see what he said there? Neither height nor depth nor what else? Anything else in all creation. Does that include you? Are you created? That includes you. And he uses such strong language here, for I am convinced. I wonder if you would allow me a little bit of theological imagination for a moment. Um, the Apostle Paul, we know, was probably just a few years younger than Jesus himself. And the Apostle Paul had a past. Right Before he was running around starting churches left and right, and writing God's word to all these churches, he was doing something quite different with his time. And he records it in the beginning of Galatians, where he says this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. We know that the Apostle Paul stood in approval at Stephen's stoning, the first recorded martyr in the book of Acts. We know that he persecuted the church we know that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And we know that his conversion happened not long after, uh, within a year or two or three of Jesus' ascension. And so one of the things that scholars wonder is, when Jesus was crucified, where was Paul? Well, it's possible, it's actually very likely that he was in Jerusalem when that happened. And I wonder what he thought about everything as it was going down. I wonder how he knows. I am convinced that nothing, including myself, can separate me from Christ because I know what my past was. I know what I did. 
I know what I did to Christ. I know what I did to his followers. The cross, the Roman cross for crucifixion was not, I think in pictures sometimes we get a wrong view that it's raised up really high. But the crosses actually were not raised up super high. The hill was bigger, so the crosses were much lower and were more at eye level. And the purpose was so that that would be extra humiliating. That people could come up to you and they could spit in your face and they could hurl insults. I wonder, I just wonder. I just wonder if Paul was one of them. Maybe he wasn't. But even if he wasn't, I think he probably approved of what was happening. You can imagine later on as Paul encounters this person on the road to Damascus. He says, why have you been persecuting me, Paul? That Paul would have a few things to overcome as he is now working for this person that he once worked so hard to persecute. But Paul was sure. He was sure of his standing with God. And of God's love for him. Because while he was yet a sinner, Christ died for him. All of the people that put Jesus on the cross and hurling insults at him, what did he say? Forgive them for they know not what they do. And you and I, no matter what our ledger says, no matter what sins and collections of sins that we've racked up, we know and can be sure because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know this. Assurance is a big deal. And if we can get sure, then that's going to change some things in our lives. It's going to change some decisions that we make. It's going to change how we treat each other. It's going to change how I pray to God. And one of the things that we do as a church that we carry on this tradition that Jesus started himself is communion. And we do this because Christ commanded it. We also do it because it gets us sure again every single time that we do it. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which means that I am declaring that that sacrifice is still applicable to me and still sufficient for me. And when I do that and I'm reminded of that, I can get sure. I get very sure. So I'm going to call our deacons up front at this time. Because we're going to do this together here tonight. You do not have to be a member of Shelby Road Baptist Church to participate in communion. But you do need to be a believer in Christ. If you have not yet given your life to Jesus, then I would encourage you to refrain from participating, but take this opportunity as a time to seriously consider the decision that you haven't made yet. To not let another day go by before you give your life to him. But if you have given your life to Christ, if you have recognized your sin before him, and you have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, 
And I encourage you to participate tonight. And before the elements reach you, I also encourage you to do some self-examination. To go through and ask yourself and ask God if there's anything that's in our way right now that I need to clear the air on with the Lord. And as you do so, and you receive the elements, I pray that as you declare and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, I pray that you get sure that you're reminded of what Christ has done for you and you can be sure of your standing with him and his love for you.